leadership development uh, for YFC Canada. So what I do is help train our new youth workers. And uh, I've just returned from Quebec. I'm also a member of this church, I should say, in case you don't know that. Um, but I've just returned from a trip to Quebec where our national staff gathered for five days uh, in Quebec City, which is significant. Um, if you don't know this, missiologists or people who study missions will tell you this, that Quebec is the most difficult place to carry out ministry in all of North America. I don't know if you know this, but less than 1% of people would claim to be uh, conservative Christians in that community. Now, to be sure, there are some people within the Catholic Church who do love Jesus and have a vibrant faith, so the statistic is somewhat skewed, but our ministry in Quebec is chronically underfunded, but they do absolutely phenomenal ministry. So we gathered there because we wanted to bless the people who work there, and um, it is a significant and distinct part of Canada, to be sure. But we had a great uh, time away, and I want to give you a brief ministry update, and by the way, I have these things available. These are our annual reports, because I don't know if you know this, but when you give to the mission support at this church, you're actually helping people like me on a monthly basis, and you do it quite generously. So thank you very much. But if you want to read more about Youth for Christ, this is our annual report, and you can get that on the uh, way out. So there are some exciting things happening, to be sure. We had our summer institute at the end of May, and we had people come uh, from all across Canada but also from Moldova, which always sounds like a made-up country to me. Uh, Moldova, France, and Kazakhstan. So what was interesting to me, and I didn't know this before, but the stands, Kurdistan, Tajikistan, um, Kazakhstan, are closed countries. And so actually, if you could pause this for one second, whoever's doing sound. Okay, thank you. Uh, we did that, and then at the end of... June in Quebec, we had uh, a theme around, it was called Enracine, which means deeply rooted. And what we're finding across Canada among our staff and among the whole Christian community, quite frankly, uh, is that our roots are being shaken. That people aren't exactly certain of where they stand in their faith or uncertain of how to speak to the culture. Uh, and we need some encouragement and we need to grow our roots deep so that we will not be shaken, we will not waver. And so, also, that we will continue to be a blessing to our nation. So we had a woman speak at the conference. One of the women who spoke, her name was Monique Le Pen, which may not mean much to you, but you'll probably remember years ago of a shooting at the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal where uh, 14 women were killed. Uh, and it was a horrendous story. Monique Le Pen uh, was on her way to prayer meeting, and when she got to prayer meeting that night, she said, we need to pray for the family of that young shooter and for all the victims. And she didn't know until the next day that that, that mother of the shooter was her. And, so, and that began a 16-year journey of processing all of that pain and so on. So she spoke on what it meant to be deeply rooted. And that was a, a tremendous encouragement, to say the least, uh, to our staff across the country. We also did something called Q-Day, and you'll see pictures of that. Uh, they're not always that clear. But Q-Day was we had these nine-minute sessions, 12 of them throughout the day. So somebody would speak for nine minutes on th things um, framed around a book called Faith for This Moment. And then we would have roundtable discussions. Then we'd have a panel. 
And it was just a great time of interaction and so on, but it was very intense and, and, and very powerful. Um, it was a different way for us to communicate. We had never tried it before, and it went remarkably well. One of the things, or some of the things that you'll discover in this, if you read this uh, annual report, is that we actually have 870 staff. About five years ago, we had 250, so we've grown tremendously. Uh, and we have 5,850 volunteers across the country who are working with 203,786 children and youth in 38 centers from Vancouver Island to Cape Breton. 6,428 young people are involved in discipleship ministries as a result of all that reaching out. So we've had a great year as a ministry, uh, and we're trying to uh, move our way forward together. We've adopted a new mission statement, which is really challenging. <laughs> Every young person living fully in Christ. That's what we want to see happen across Canada. So there's some unprecedented things happening that give me great joy. I was having breakfast with Chris this week, and I told him that uh, Youth for Christ, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Power to Change, are cooperating. They're, we're all using the same evangelistic training stuff. We're crossing paths here, there, and everywhere. There's amazing partnerships. There's great unity happening in ministry across Canada. Uh, the old denominational barriers are kind of breaking down. The old organizational barriers are breaking down, and people are working together, which may not be a big deal to you, but if you've been in ministry for a while, it's a huge deal. <laughs> uh, and it's very exciting, and we need to act together uh, in unity. So that's a bit about YFC Canada, and I thank you for your help in making that uh, happen. I'm very grateful. So let's turn now to talk about what's, uh, what lies ahead for us today. And I want to talk about our cultural moment. You saw in that last um, slide a picture of Joanne and I cycling. So Quebec is prominent in, in what I'll speak about today. Um, but Joanne and I decided to do a 200-kilometer bike ride uh, called Le Petit, Grand, uh, Le Petit Train de Nord cycling trip. It's not easy. My French isn't so good. Uh, so it's 200 kilometers over four days. And that was a big deal to me because you'll remember if uh, you heard me speak last year, I had a horrible knee injury. So this was my carrot, <laughs> my proverbial carrot. Could I do this? And uh, so we did 60 kilometers the first day, 60 the second, uh, 50 the third, and then 32 the last day. So, and it went well. The knee held up, uh, which was very exciting to me. So along that trip, we traveled with uh, eight different, eight other people who would go from bed and breakfast with us over the course of four days. And after the first ride, on, uh, one of the guys from Daniel, named Daniel, who was from uh, the south shore of Montreal, a place called St. Uh, Aubin, I think it is. Um, he said, you know, we're going out for a team party at the end of our ride, a, a, a team meeting, do you want to come? So that meant he was going to the tavern and, and sit around and talk. So we did, we joined him. Um, and he was with a group of four people. And we became friends very quickly. But we got to the tavern and we sat down. And Daniel did this, it was interesting. He went around the circle and he asked each person, what do you do? So he asked Joanne. She said, I'm a nurse. A couple people were educators. And I was last. I don't know why this happens. Um, but it does. And it, and it 
gives me mixed feelings because part of me says, I'm not sure if I want to go out with these guys. I don't know how rowdy they're going to be. Um, you know, I'm not always comfortable with the language or some of the values that they hold. And the other part of me wars with that and says, but man, here's a chance to talk with, to them about who Jesus is. <laughs> so Daniel gets to me and he said, um, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a minister. I train youth workers across the country uh, who reach out to kids who are at risk. And he stopped me and goes, wow, I have a million questions for you. <laughs> I said, well, okay. Um, he said, is that okay? And, and I said, sure, let's try it. So I, I live for moments like this. I've got to be honest with you. So he asked me, he said, how did we get to the place where we are now? How did we get here? And I didn't know exactly what he meant, but what he meant is, how did we get to the place where Catholics and Protestants are so divided? So... Uh, actually went back to 1517 when Martin Luther posted 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door trying to bring reform to the Catholic Church. And so we talked about that for a little while, and he said, that's very interesting. Uh, and then he said, um, what do you think about priests? Do you think they should be married? So <laughs> you get the sense that you might be walking into a bit of a, you know, a, a beehive here. Um, so that's not the saying, but you know what I mean. So I said, well, I said, it's not great. <laughs> um, and he said, you're married, right? And I said, yes. Then it became obvious to me as he kept talking that how he understands Christian people is through this lens of the, the priest's sexual abuses that have happened in the Catholic Church tragically. And so we got talking about how, yes, that is the case, and it's horrendous, but there are sincere, believing people trying to serve God with everything they have. And so we had this great discussion around Quebec, uh, and I was reminded of this time, um, and we kept talking because he wanted to know part of my story. I learned more of his. And I just realized that in Quebec in particular, there's such suspicion of who Christian people are. And I'm not sure Daniel had ever had any interaction with any kind of a Protestant minister or a person who claimed to be of faith. And he was almost 60 years old. So it was very unique and interesting, and I was reminded of when I was in seminary, and uh, I actually had just moved to Woodstock, and I had about four or five courses left to go, and I was trying to figure out how I would fit them all in um, with the schedule and so on. And so there was a professor at our seminary, Tyndale Seminary, and his name was Ian Rennie. And Ian was a big, um, big man uh, with a great laugh, a hearty laugh that would fill the room. But he was also known as the preeminent church historian in Canada. This guy knew everything. Um, and if you're in doubt, you can ask Chris later. So Ian knew everything. And my friend Kinson and I actually used to sit at the back of class in his church history courses. And Kinson and I would sit there and try and figure out ways that we could stump him. So we would write down questions that we would ask Ian, and we never did. We would say, tell us about, you know, the missions movement in Thamesford, Ontario, and what happened, or the Orangemen. Things that were so obscure. And he'd laugh, and he'd go, oh, yeah, that reminds me. And then he would talk about it for 10 minutes. So this guy was brilliant. So somehow I talked him into uh, a one-on-one -on -one independent course over the course of the summer in Canadian church history. And here is the deal. We would gather together, and uh, my job was to read as much as I could about a certain topic during the week. 
And then I'd come and sit down with him for two and a half hours in his office and tell him everything I learned. So on this one particular day, we were studying the quiet revolution in Quebec, which may not mean much to you, and I'll tell you just about all that I told Ian. And so I said, uh, the quiet revolution happened in the 1960s, uh, the, the Catholic Church had significant influence in the community. They controlled education. They controlled health. They controlled unions. Uh, they controlled public discourse. But not everybody appreciated how they controlled things. So government came to power in 1960 and said, we're going to take that over. And over the course of a decade or less, they actually sidelined the church. And people left the church in droves. And, and, and it wasn't very sensational. That's why it was called the Quiet Revolution. And the result was this, is that people by and large checked out of church and, and faith life and clergy in Quebec lost their voice. They lost influence. And so now people who are in the church and who have faith in Quebec feel like they're marginalized, like they're pushed to the outside and they don't really have a voice and they don't know where to speak. And I wonder, well, I actually think that that's relevant to us too. That we have kind of lost our place in our culture. Where is it that we speak? How can we be heard? Sometimes the voices that are heard in the Christian world are those that are most polarizing. Those that are most extreme, those that are most ugly. So when I tell Daniel that I'm a Christian um, and, and I... I'm a minister in Canada. You know what comes to his mind sometimes? Pictures of very mean-spirited people who shout anti-gay slogans at Westboro Baptist Church, who go on the radio and make extreme comments. So all of a sudden, I'm lumped in with these people that I really don't want to be lumped in with. So how do I speak? How, do I, how am I heard in the community in ways that can actually be helpful and maybe bless people? I was watching the news Tuesday night, uh, the Weather Network, actually, and I couldn't find the story afterwards, but here's what I remember as I watched. The broadcaster showed footage of a torrential rain in Louisiana, I believe it was, where there had been 40 centimeters of rain in one hour. So, uh, and I have a friend living in Louisiana who is texting me a bit about this. Um, so the devastation was significant and pervasive. Cars were submerged, homes were flooded, crops were destroyed, and people were left disoriented and devastated. People's lives were turned upside down. Now, metaphorically speaking, I wonder, I think that sometimes for us Christians today who have witnessed our culture shift overnight like a torrential rain, if we feel like we are exiled, that we've been marginalized, how do we speak to our culture? Uh, some time ago, uh, when I was probably five or six, that era of time, um, Canada, by and large, had this big story where everybody knew what the Christian story was. I, I didn't know it well. I didn't come to faith until I was almost 18 years old. But by and large, in Canadian society, most people knew what the Christian story was. Our conversations in public discourse were framed around values, Judeo-Christian values. Um, we kind of knew where we stood. Everybody had that common meta-narrative, it was called, or big story. 
But that's changed now. Now we're just one of those little voices in a plethora of other voices, aren't we? And we wonder, how do we fit in? There's been such secularism, there's been such mass um, pluralism, immigration that have kind of changed things. If people, as people have moved into our country, and that's great, uh, where they're practicing faith, but where is our voice? And we think, yeah, that might be the case in Toronto or Ottawa or the larger cities. But there I was, cycling my bike on Thursday morning on number 17 there, the Tollgate Road. And I looked, what's this building being built? And there it was, the future home of a Sikh temple. So I thought, this is interesting. Even in Woodstock, beside a cornfield, we're just one voice of many. So how will we be heard and heard well? How will we sustain our faith in the midst of this barrage of things? There's a book coming out in September um, called Faith, uh, Faith Exiles all about young people and how they're leaving the church in droves across Canada and North America. And they use this expression called digital Babylon. They say that in our pockets we have these handheld devices and it shapes everything that we do. It shapes our values, our philosophies, and so on. And it's very difficult to form people spiritually on one hour on a Sunday morning. So what do we do to sustain our faith? which is one of the issues here, but also how do we speak to our culture in ways where we'll be heard well and where we'll actually bless the world. So I want us to look at a couple of biblical passages this morning. Uh, the first one will be somewhat familiar to the, most of you from Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you want to turn there with me. Um, and we'll say this, in the Old Testament when they use the phrase exile, it actually meant literal exile. You think of Abram and Sarai uh, who were called to leave their land and go to the land Ur of the Chaldees. So they picked up and moved their things. Uh, they went to this place that they didn't know anything about. Um, the people didn't practice the same faith that they had. They didn't know who they were. All they had was each other. And that was sometimes tenuous. So there was that exile. And then you have Moses um, rescuing the the Hebrew people from Egypt. So they lived in Egypt and they'd kind of forgotten who they were, that they were God's chosen people. They had forgotten how to practice their faith and they didn't know their place. They were away from their temple. It happens again in Jeremiah, um, probably the most famous exile passage in the Old Testament, where the people of Judah, southern Israel, were carried away en masse in 587 B.C. Uh, to Babylon. Now, Babylon was this thriving city uh, with the hanging gardens, and it was majestic, and, and, and probably the leading city in the world by terms of technology and beauty. So these people are dragged away uh, to Babylon, and we're going to read the story of what Jeremiah, the letter that he wrote to the people who were in exile starting at verse 4 of chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. 
Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it proffers, profits, prospers, that's the word, you too will prosper. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And this is the verse that we probably all know better than any of the others. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So that's um, the Old Testament understanding is the people are taken away from everything they know, these Israelite people. Uh, and they're actually, you know, when they go off to Babylon, they're given new names. So what um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is trying to do is he's not enslaving the people per se. He wants to assimilate them into his culture. He doesn't want to make life difficult for them. What he wants them to do is leave behind their old ways of worshiping the one true God and worship the gods that he has now. Give yourself to the money and wealth and influence of Babylon. Leave behind those things and everything will go great. So it was more of a subtle thing. So we'll change your name. We'll give you different food. There'll be different spiritual practices. And eventually, very slowly and subtly, you'll move from your allegiance to the one true God to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, to the gods of Babylon. Now in the New Testament, I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Um, Exile in the New Testament is, is more metaphorical, and I think it is for us too, but you'll notice that Peter addresses how Peter addresses the people here as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. So Peter's encouragement here is, yes, you are exiles. Things are difficult. You may not know where you belong. And how many people of you, you don't have to raise your hands. It's up to you. But have you ever felt like you don't really belong anywhere? Ever been at dinner parties or at family gatherings or other places where you feel like my beliefs, my faith really set me apart? It feels awkward. Uh, we feel like we're on the peripheral, the, the margins of that society. We don't belong. So how do we encourage a faith um, that is vibrant in the midst of all that? Now, Rick McKinley, in his book, Faith for This Moment, and I encourage you to read it. I think it's just a tremendous encouragement. I've actually been dialoguing with the author, and he sent a, a personalized video for us at our uh, national ministry conference that was terrific. But he would say, whenever people in exile um, experience that, it results in three losses. There's three common losses that seem to hit them across cultures. And for those of you who have been exiled um, some in our midst here, you may relate to these. The first one is a loss of identity. So once upon a time, people who followed Jesus had an identity that fit well within society. Pastors were respected. Church attendance was far greater than it is today. And debates in the public square took into consideration what God or the church had to say on the matter. But that day is long past. For followers of Jesus, our identity within the culture has become marginalized as society has grown more secular and plural. Today, hundreds of beliefs and worldviews compete for the attention of the hearts and minds of people. In other words, our faith is just one of many options out there. Christians who once felt their faith had a home in Canada are realizing increasingly that they are a minority group. And I don't want us to despair. I'm just describing the reality. We're going to get to the hope part in a little bit, so hang in with me. Secondly, people in exile um, experience a loss of place. The loss of identity leads to a second loss that Christians experience today. Christian voices have receded to the margins within society. This uneasiness has led many to scramble for security. How do I speak uh, where do I speak? Um, how do I make my voice known in a public school? How do I make my voice known in a workplace? How do I advocate for values that are higher than what is customarily agreed to? How do I do that when I feel like my place has been uprooted? And then finally, the loss of practice. That's the last, last, last loss that people experience. They no longer understand what it means to practice their faith. Christian practice tends to get reduced to being nice, not bothering anyone, and not taking the faith too seriously or causing a scene. The radical cross-bearing faith of Peter, James, and John is inspiring to read about, but seemingly impossible to replicate. I think sometimes when I sit in church on a, on a Sunday morning, and, and I sit there, and we're all looking forward, and we're watching whatever's happening on stage. It doesn't cause me to have to participate an awful lot. I can check out mentally. I can watch what's going on here. Uh, I don't have to look at my neighbors and experience community if 
I'm feeling grumpy that particular day. Um, but sometimes I feel I can just be at the movies. So how do we actually practice our faith? Because one hour on a Sunday morning isn't going to sustain us all the time, is it? I wonder if you've ever felt these losses. Sometimes it can cause us to think, you know, three different ways. We can deny that our society has changed. It's really not bad. Um, it's not much of a problem. Young people go away to university. They struggle with trying to stand up for their rights. How do I argue with a professor who's so well-educated? How do I advocate for my point of view when I know he's actually misrepresenting what Christian people believe sometimes? How do I speak to that? How do I be a blessing in my community in the midst of that onslaught? And we can deny that it's actually there. Or we can despair. Sometimes I see these comments on social media um, where we despair and, and we're fearful of what's happening in our culture and our society and we lash out in anger. I think that anger is actually fueled by fear because we don't know what to do. Uh, young people's values seem to be changing so much. So I see sometimes people of the older generation making comments, um, you know, saying to young people, stop trying to make me change. That's not what they're doing. What they're trying to figure out is, how do I live my faith in the midst of this culture which has changed drastically from yours? Let us be patient and not divide among ourselves and be encouraging to one another. Let's not despair. The final thing I think we can do, the best choice, is that I think we can see the possibilities that God has for us. I want you to watch this video here. It's called Exiles on Main Street. Um, it's by a man named Brian Zond, and he just talks about what does it mean to live while we're exiles in the midst of our larger culture. So, Brian, if you will. You know, um, so... <laughs> 587 B.C., Jerusalem's destroyed the Jews who are to be the people of God. They're to be the embodiment of this other way of being a human society. They are carried off into a uh, foreign empire as exiles, as captives. And immediately they begin to console themselves by saying, well, this is only a temporary situation, won't last long, a few months and, you know, we'll be, we'll be back at it. And the prophet Jeremiah says, oh, no, 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 no. This is going to be like 70 years. This is going to be several generations. So you got to, you know, build houses and get married and have kids and go on with life. Uh, seek the welfare of Babylon because in its welfare, you'll have your own welfare. And so they did, but they got a little too good at it. And they, got, they were reaching the point where they were in danger of losing their Jewish identity as the people of God and just morphing into little Babylonians. And so that's why you get the books of Ezekiel and Daniel calling for them to live in this tension of being a part of the empire but being apart from the empire. And that is tricky and it's, it's not easy. We, we got to learn how to be exiles on Main Street, how to, how to live as exiles, and yet we're still... You know, we're still responsibly engaged in human society. You know, we're going to be school teachers and we're going to be, you know, bakers and candlestick makers and whatever else we're going to be, but still apart from the empire. Exiles on Main Street. How do we nurture and what are practices to nurture our awareness? 
Well, you know, I just have to try to channel Walter Brueggemann here, and you need a you need a counter script because we it's true. I mean, we grow, we grow up scripted, and we have no idea we've been scripted. And all of the liturgies of advertising and liturgies of empire, I mean, we don't even... And, and so that's why we need church and Lord's Prayer and Psalms and liturgy and maybe a sermon now and then. We need some things that can activate an alternative imagination that, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe, maybe the kingdom of Christ really is possible. Maybe in some subtle way it can creep into our real world. Maybe there is some way to live out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In a simple little way, but let's, we, we have to keep those influences. Because if you lose those influences, then, then there's nothing else to form you but the empire. And, and this, see, this is why the empire never likes poets very much, because poets are unwieldy. They can just think. And, and the empire wants to conscript everything to its own agenda, and poets are the ones that are the best at offering us an alternative imagination. That's why it's helpful for us to understand that the Hebrew prophets were not primarily preachers as we think of it. They, they weren't activists as we think of it. They were poets. And they simply imagined, wait a minute, you know, things could be other. So, you know, what would it be like if the lion laid down with the lamb? What if the powerful were not exploiting the weak? I mean, what would that look like? And so, but then when the day's done, they say, but it's just a poem anyway. And yet, maybe it's a poem that God breathed on. Maybe we recognize it as so breathed on that we say, let's... Let's like canonize it. Let's put it, let's make it scripture. Let's recognize that God so breathed on this that if we breathe some of that same air, some of that same air of scripture, maybe we can get intoxicated enough, we can get high enough that we can start seeing some other visions of how life could be. I've never said that before. That was a good one there. Get high. So I want us to talk quickly uh, about four practices, and I'm going to show you one quick video, and trust me, it'll be worth it at the end, um, about some practices that help us use an alternative imagination, a counter script. And the first one is called centering practice. The, this is a term that came out of the Quaker world. And um, what this is talking about is we listen to the Word of God, we pray with God, and that focuses us. I don't know if you're anything like me, but some days I get going in a rush and I look at my phone and I've got this little Bible app and I read a verse and it's like one minute long. Um, and, and you know, it's helpful, <laughs> but it doesn't really transform me deep down, does it? We tend to think of Scripture and we look to Scripture to gather information, sometimes to affirm our own views, but really what we want Scripture to do is to get into our heart of hearts so that it transforms our whole life so that it takes over our life, that Jesus speaks to us in those deepest places. And you know what? It doesn't happen quickly. We sit, we sit quietly. We pray. I don't know if any of you ever practice Lectio Divina, which really means divine reading. And it's a way of sitting with the Scriptures. We're allowing God to speak to us. When I do that, amazing things happen. 
I remember in December being away and I was speaking somewhere and we got our signals crossed and I didn't have to speak for three hours. So I found myself there with three hours to spare and I was reading the story of Zechariah hearing that uh, John the Baptist was going to be born to him and he didn't really believe it and God makes him quiet. Do you remember that? He didn't believe it because he thought that God had abandoned him. At that point in my life, I was going through some stuff where I actually felt like that. And I was reading the story of Zechariah, and God was speaking to me deep down in my heart and changing things. It doesn't happen in a rush. It demands quietness as Christ forms us. The other practices come out of that one, and I'll touch on them quickly. Generosity. We sometimes forget how much we have and possess and we easily get sucked into Babylon with all of its successes, excesses. What else do I need to buy? Do I need a new ATV, a new boat, a second or third home? All of those things, rather than thinking of what could I give away generously to someone else? I know a man quite well um, who probably makes somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 million dollars a year, but he's actually uh, part of a club of people where they seek to live on $120,000 a year and give away the rest of their money. So every year they challenge one another to give away more money. Isn't that cool? I'll give you his name. Maybe. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but we are meant to bless others who are in need by being generous. The practice of generosity frees us from anxiety over scarcity and create space inside us for acts of love. To bless another is to impart to them a tangible expression of joy. Most of us have very little need for any other things. And I realize I skipped over Sabbath. The world beats to this perpetual drum, doesn't it? That always tells us, keep going, keep producing. And even on Sunday, we're checking our phones and we're reading our emails and we're doing all these things because we don't want to be caught off guard Monday. We want to stay on top. And what it does is it creates this angst in us that we never actually relax. We're always uneasy, always wondering what do we have to do next rather than recreating and allowing God to speak to us. So Sabbath, I don't know what, how you grew up, um, but early in my Christian life when I began to hear about Sabbath, People described it as all these things we couldn't do. We can't ride our bikes. We can't go swimming. Um, you know, we can't do these. That's not what Sabbath is about. Sabbath is actually about being quiet and putting aside those work things that we need to do so that God can speak to us so that we can be recreated and refreshed so that we can move on for the rest of the week. It's a gift given to us. And when we practice that, we're actually going against what our culture says and saying, no, this day I can take off. I can relinquish control to God on this day at least, for sure. That all will be good if I give this to God. We practice Sabbath. And finally, hospitality. It's grounded in the fact that while we are foreigners and strangers and exiles, we are welcomed by God and then asking, how do I import that, impart that to others? How do I help others experience the welcoming presence of God? How do I get out of my comfort zone and express to others in meaningful ways that they matter to me and to God? Hebrews 13 says this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, 
For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I want to show you a picture, if you can advance that, Ryan. Uh, the young woman in the bottom left corner is a woman named Steph. She's now um, 20 years old. When she was 17, she found out from her mother, uh, basically her mother had told her that she wanted her to move out, that she was going to live with, uh, the mother was going to live with her boyfriend, and there was no room for her. So her mother said, I want you to pack your bags and to move out. Um, they had had a strained relationship. And so Steph had this friend at school who was a young Christian woman named Meg uh, in grade 12 or grade 11 of their school in Quebec. Um, and Meg said, why don't you come and live with our family for, you know, a few days till we get this sorted out. And so uh, that's my friend Al and his wife Dorothy in that middle picture. Uh, and Steph is with them. So Steph went to live with them. And to make a long story short, this family uh, began to bring her fully into their family. So I interviewed Dorothy at our national ministry conference, and I said, what did it cost you? And she said, well, I had this picture of what my ideal family was going to be like, um, and this was really inconvenient, but I recognized that this girl needed to be loved. And so then she talks about how they eventually brought Steph in. Now, here's the really cool thing. You'll see this in the video in a minute that Steph now calls Alan Dorothy mom and dad. It's very cool. Um, so the quality of this next video, it was shot on the Plains of Abraham, so it's a bit noisy with the wind, um, but hopefully you'll understand the difference that hospitality can make. Ryan. My name is Steph, and I am Alan Dorothy Harris' daughter. Can you tell us how you came to live with the Harris? Yeah, um, the familial circumstances with my biological family were really difficult and there was a lot of um, conflict and so it just, it wasn't working and I was a misfit so my mom had asked me to uh, leave promptly. <laughs> so Megan was my best friend from like grade 7 all the way through high school, we were really close and uh, I just texted her the morning of if she would be able to pick me up because I was in a bit of a sticky situation as she came right away within 15 minutes she was by my side so tell us what was the adjustment the adjustment into a new family was really difficult um, it wasn't was what I was expecting either um, such a close-knit family was such the opposite of what I had known my entire life that I was really confused for a lot of the time yeah. um, I, yeah it was it was hard but at the same time, it was almost peaceful, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because I felt supported and I felt guided, but at the same time, everything was just kind of a mess in my head. I didn't really know what was going on. And for a while, we didn't know if I was going to stay permanently with them or not. So I was kind of stressing about what I would do or what I wouldn't do until we got to that point where um, my parents asked me if I wanted to stay with them long term. I had no idea what that was going to look like, but to integrate a new person into a family, it, it uh, causes some conflict. <laughs> so Steph, tell us what difference hospitality is with you and how your life has changed. Well, as we know, I <laughs> have become a Christian since then. Um, but the hospitality itself was honestly unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life before being in a home where I was neglected and um, not even half as cared for as I am with the Herons. Um, 
yeah, it was really, it was amazing. It brought peace to me, and I honestly, I encountered God through the hospitality that was given to me by family. Because one of my dreams was always to have a close-knit family, and God introduced himself to me through this family and kindness and love that was just poured out on me, and I was so confused because I was a complete stranger that just got brought into this home, but I was loved as if I had always been there. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's really how God introduced himself to me, and I think two weeks after um, they brought me into their home, I received Christ in my heart, so, yeah. Tell me about those first few moments when you uh, entered the Heron House. <laughs> um, I actually brought my stuff and I had a shift to go work at, so I went to work. And by the time I came home, uh, for those of you who know the lovely Annika, <laughs> when I got home, she had made a bunch, a bunch of cupcakes and muffins or whatever, and on them she wrote, "We heart you." And I cried so much. <laughs> it was the sweetest thing. <laughs> Beautiful. So, Steph, was there a turning point in your faith journey that you remember? Yes, um, before arriving at the Heron household, I was completely atheist because I thought that if I was going through all of the mess that was my life and all the pain that there couldn't possibly be a God. Um, and I remember Megan was going to youth rally at the time and I went with her without being Christian, I just went with her. And uh, Cheryl Johnson was the one who was preaching and she was talking about how um, God is walking you through your life to get you from point A to point B, which is like his planned purpose for you. Um, and I was really confused and she just kept on talking about how to get from point A to point B there's gonna be a bunch of crap that happens in your life there's gonna be bad things that happen um, but that doesn't mean that God isn't constantly pushing you towards your purpose uh, and she put Jeremiah 29 11 up on the board which is where I know the plans I have for you says the Lord plans for you to prosper and on and on and when I read that verse I felt this immense wave of just peace and it started to make sense and I started to question if there really is a God as opposed to believing that there's no God at all. <laughs> Steph, I imagine there's been some difficulties in that. Was Al the most difficult one? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so Steph, there's been some difficult points along the way for sure. Yeah. Um, but how do you see yourself now in God's eyes? Um, now I definitely see myself in God's hands, that he's holding me and he's protecting me and carrying me through all the big hurdles, the small hurdles in life, as opposed to feeling like bad things are happening to me so he doesn't exist. I see them as bad things are happening to me. I need to look to God in order to get me through it, in order to help me grow through it, in order to help me persevere. Or one of my favorite mottos that I live by is find the lesson. So usually it's something bad that's happening. There's definitely a life, a life lesson that's in it, so. <laughs> My name is Steph, and I am Alex. So God may not be calling you to bring a young woman into your home to be part of your family, but we do have this opportunity to practice our faith so that it can sustain us and so that it can bless other people around us. Steph, you heard in her own um, voice, has a new identity. She recognizes that she is a child of God. She has a place where she belongs. She's part of the family, the Heron family, and part of the larger Christian family. 
And this year, she actually went away to Amsterdam where she served uh, with a YWAM mission team in the heart of Amsterdam. This girl's life has been transformed. So when we're tempted to despair and to draw back and protect ourselves, let us remember that God is faithful. Uh, Ryan, if you can show that next quote there, please. That God is faithful. And that if we practice our faith, we have an opportunity not just to sustain our faith, but to grow in it and to bless other people. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And help us, Lord, um, not to take it lightly. I pray that we would be people who are formed by your Holy Spirit as we read your word, as it gets into our hearts. And I pray that you would change us and that you would keep us from being fearful or angry or any of the other negative reactions that we might have to our culture but that we could live with boldness and that we could practice kindness and generosity and hospitality to those around us who so desperately need it. For I thank you in the name of Jesus. that we'd rather be.